So I'd like to begin by sharing something I brought over from the bathroom in the room I'm staying in. It was on the wall. <laughs> and it's like one of those things you get at Hallmark, like a Chotsky kind of thing, like one of these things. But here's what it says. Uh, Lose yourself in nature and you will find yourself at home. Isn't that nice? <laughs> it's got a little deer bouncing around in the woods. I'm not going to, it's not like taking a spoon or, I'm not going to keep it. <laughs> but it's, you know, anyway, I'll put it by the altar for uh, the time we're here. So I say that and then I, I realize, you know, when we meet together for our practice interviews, so many of the stories shared of this kind of sacred land and of, uh, you know, La telling me coming in the, in the morning, seeing that kind of sliver of a moon, or that was last night over, the, over this building. And then one friend described a praying mantis and going down to the level of the praying mantis and eye to eye, you know, and having that communion and someone else, the glint of these falling leaves. You know, I've been hearing these stories that are, you know, communion. And then our altars. Have you all checked out the altars? You know, they're just, ah, so alive. It's, you know, just beautiful bugs and feathers and rocks. So when you hear that phrase, lose yourself in nature and you will find yourself at home, there's not one of us that doesn't in some way get that. And, um, and our minds get real entangled when you hear the, the Buddhist talk of, of ideas of no self. And yet we hear that lose yourself in nature and we really get it. You know, we, we know. And, and I, I've spoken with so many that have described this kind of sense of the presence with and then it's just here we are, you know, just this naturalness, or lose ourself in our connectedness with each other, just feel what else emerges when we uh, really let in the loving that's here, you know, that that experience of losing ourself. Or as it's gotten quiet here, just lose ourself into that silence, and there's just a sense of just being. And in a way what I'm naming are the refuges. And we discover refuge in what is. We lose ourself, our smallness, into the what is. There's a, um, many of you have now heard us describe uh, Swami Satchidananda, and he's uh, one, of the, one of the great stories that we like to tell is of uh, one of his students asking him, if you have to be a Hindu to do yoga. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not a Hindu, I'm an undo. <laughs> you know, I'm an undo. And to me that speaks a whole lot of this path we're on. Um, that, there's, that we're paying attention in a way that undoes the kind of constricted sense of self. That undoes our identification with the stories and the emotions it doesn't get rid of the thoughts or the emotions but it undoes the identification 
there's a um, metaphor of the spiritual path where, and it goes like this, that we jump off a plane with a parachute and then we realize, really, there's no parachute. We don't have a parachute. And then we realize, well, there's no ground to hit. And then we realize that there's no one that jumped. We jump off a plane with this parachute. In other words, we come to retreat. We've got our, our you know, repertoire of what we're going to do to work it out. You know? And then we realize, that actually, there's no way to control it. Like, have you noticed that? It, stuff just happens, right? And then we realize stuff happens, but there's really no ground hit. It just keeps changing. You know, it's not like some solid thing. And then if, we, if there's real presence, that presence itself dissolves a sense of somebody it's happening to. But I might be getting ahead of myself in this talk, so let's, we'll slow it down a little and just say that meditation, this practice of paying attention, is a process that gradually dissolves the identification with some story of separateness and selfness. It does that. And then it reveals this, it's hard to put words to it, but a wholeness of being. It's something that we yearn to experience. What I'd like to do tonight is, in a way, explore, reflect on this process of undoing um, on, and three domains of our experience. And one domain is the undoing that happens at the level of mind, where we begin to wake up and wake up out of thoughts and undo the identification with thoughts. And then the next level is the undoing that happens in the emotional center of the heart, how we wake up out of the clutch that thinks, I am these emotions. And then the third level, sometimes described as the belly or dantian, is really the identification, this clutch that's resisting life itself, this very existential clutching feeling of self, kind of the most basic. And we'll explore what happens as that clinging releases at each of those levels. So it's just, in a way, it's just another way that, I'm, that we're organizing how to begin to consider this waking up process we're in. But for me personally, it's a real live one. And I've never given this talk before in this way. Um, and it's very, much, it's very much a part of my practice right now. So in that way, the talk might be a little rough because it's, I have, you know, haven't kind of articulated some of it. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, okay. Little story for you. When he was very young, he waved his arms, snapped his massive jaws, and tromped around the house so the dishes trembled in the china cabinet. Oh, for goodness sake, his mother said, you are not a dinosaur, you're a human being. Since he was not a dinosaur, he thought for a time he might be a pirate. Seriously, his father said to him after school one day, what do you want to be? A fireman, maybe? Policeman? Soldier? But in high school, they gave him tests and told him he was good with numbers. Perhaps he'd like to be a math teacher. That was respectable. Or a tax accountant. He could make a lot of money doing that. It seemed like a good idea to make money, what with falling in love and thinking about raising a family. So he became a tax accountant, even though he sometimes regretted it because it made him feel, well, small. And he felt even smaller when he was no longer a tax accountant but a retired tax accountant. Still worse, a retired tax accountant who forgot things. 
He forgot to take the garbage to the curb, to take his pill, to turn on his hearing aid. Every day it seemed he forgot more things, important things, like where his children lived and which of them were married and divorced. Then one day, when he was out for a walk by the lake, he forgot what his mother had told him. He forgot that he was not a dinosaur. He stood blinking his dinosaur eyes in the bright sunlight, feeling its familiar warmth on his dinosaur skin, watching dragonflies flitting among the horsetails at the water's edge. So I was reflecting on what, what about that kind of got to me so much. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think it's, I think many people feel this, that there's, that there's a kind of um, sorrow or grieving in how we lose life to our stories. Do you understand? That, that we each have, have developed stories, and they may, maybe it wasn't that somebody said you're not a dinosaur, maybe they just didn't pay attention to you and you didn't feel like you were worth being attended to. Or maybe they, uh, in some way, didn't, they judged you for being a certain way, you were too needy, or maybe they judged you for just being too much to handle, or what, and then all of, that was the story. We we have so many ways that maybe you had an experience of real violation and the story was it's totally not safe. And so we, we, we grow up to live with stories about who we are in the world and they keep us from our life. They keep us from the fullness of our life. So when we start investigating the domain of mind, we start investigating how it is that we are living in a virtual reality. I'm talking on the story level, but just thoughts themselves. So what happens here at retreat is we start getting quieter. There's moments when we're actually resting in in the silence. We, We are the silence. And then it becomes clearer that, oh, these thoughts are just thoughts. These are not reality. These are just thoughts. And the more there's a gap between thoughts, the more we have that perception, we're able to perceive that these are thoughts, they're not the real thing. Now, that recognition that thoughts are not reality is about as profound as it gets. And the more times we notice that, uh, the more we're resting in, in the aliveness and the awareness itself. But we spend a lot of time believing our thoughts. I mean, you know, let's say you want a, um, a refreshing late snack. Let's say you want an apple. And you can have a thought of an apple, but you can't eat the thoughts, right? And we all know this. You can think about an apple all you want, but if you want to actually experience you have to pick up a real one and eat it. The thoughts are not the real apple. Okay, so we can go, yeah, I I can kind of get that. And when we say, well, what are thoughts? Well, electrical signals in the brain, there's stuff going on through the synapses, and there's little sound bites, and their experiences, images. But when we're in the grip of something, it it's not just a movie in the mind. It it we think this is what's really real. We think it's really real. 
we believe the movies to be reality and if we didn't, we wouldn't suffer. We only suffer, and this is really, just listen to this one, we only suffer because we're believing something that's untrue. So before, this is not a dismissing of thoughts, as you know, many, we've said this many times, um, we need them to survive and to thrive. And um, thoughts are a critical part of spiritual awakening, the, the, the skillful use of thinking. Thinking can create an atmosphere and an environment that's really conducive to waking up. Art can keep us trapped. It just goes either way. When we believe our thoughts, though, when we're believing them, when we're inside them, they divide us from ourselves and from each other and from the world. I mean, they, they're just, the way thoughts are designed, it's they compare, they judge. It's part of the hard wiring. And often the thought creates that I'm not okay and you're not okay. Then if we just start investigating the thoughts we have that really create images of ourselves, that collection of them that we have, Most often the gist is this assessment. We have this standard of how we should be, how we should be thinking, feeling, acting. Most of us go around with that. We have that. And we're constantly monitoring to how we're doing according to that, continuously. We have this expectation how we should be. And usually there's some argument with how it is, and that's the, the word Ajashanti uses a lot, but I really am actually beginning to like it, that in some way if you think it should be different, there's going to be suffering. If you have any belief it should be different. Because if you're arguing with reality, you're just not going to ever be content. So what we do is we put ourselves above others or below others, and how we think others are perceiving us continuously, you know, shapes our sense of okayness. So we're in this constant milieu of thinking and evaluating and then feeling um, either up or down. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I got two emails in a row. And the first email was an invitation to keynote a conference on the West Coast. And part of me went, oh, that's really cool. You know, it's it's good, 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 you know, publicity and this and that, and I felt good. But I got uptight because it was a busy time of year and I don't like flying. So it was a mix of inflated but kind of annoyed. The very next email was a friend who was writing to me about this really cool conference coming up at Harvard about emotions and meditation, and I wasn't invited. And immediately this and kind of inflated, well, that's kind of cool, invited to keynote, went, you know, and all of a sudden... So what's the deal? You know, what about me? You know, that feeling. Have you noticed with emails how your mood moves? <laughs> it's amazing. You know, inflated, deflated, stress, something you want more of, something you want less of. I'll read you one email I got. Thank you once more. Your book helped me a lot to cope with pain. Some days ago, when I had terrible renal colics due to a kidney stone, once I expel it, I will name the stone after you. (laughs) I thought, you know, what a way to inflate my ego, you know. (laughs) So when there is grasping at the level of mind, when we're believing thoughts, we're holding on to them, and they affect our experience. So this is a story of an older man, a lifetime smoker. He's hospitalized with emphysema. 
And after a series of small strokes, his daughter urges him, as she often has, to give up smoking. So he refuses. He asks her to buy him actually another pack of cigarettes. And he says, look, I'm a smoker this life. That's how it is. But several days he has another stroke. And um, apparently one of the you know, memory areas of the brain. And then without concern, he stopped smoking for good. But it wasn't something he decided to do. He woke up one morning and just forgot he was a smoker. Okay? So to the extent that we're caught by our roles, we're identified we're, and unable to put them down, we suffer. Just reflect for a moment. I want you just, uh, just to get a sense of how your own being is confined or not confined. Just to know, just this is just a very brief reflection. You might think of somebody that matters to you, that that you care about. Just bring somebody to mind. And I know when we ask you things like that, then you have to kind of figure out which person and all that. But just somebody. And the question is, what is it that you most don't want this person to see about you? Just be aware of that. And then the same person, what is it you most want this person to see about you? Now, let them both be there. See if you can just be in awareness and notice them both. the self when it's more free to be who you like to be and the self when you're most caught in conditioning. Just let them both be there and just notice what that's like. And then for the next few seconds, maybe five seconds, just let go of all thoughts. Just notice what happens to any sense of self then. In the Carlos Castaneda books, Don Juan, the shaman, says that when the inner dialogue stops, our life changes. Our life is as it is only because we repeatedly tell ourselves who we are. Okay, so this is, this is the level of the mind. And our training here is quite simple and powerful, which is we're not trying to get rid of thoughts. Rather, there's just this simple intention to recognize when we can that awareness has contracted, that our attention has been confined inside a thought, 
And in that noticing, in the moment of recognizing thoughts, that which is recognizing, you begin to inhabit again. In other words, you move from the level of thought back to mind or awareness. And gradually, and this is where um, the training, we can see the training, the more moments that you've, re- you've kind of woken up out of a thought, the more you become familiar with the wakefulness that's noticing. And that feels more like home than believing in the content of the thought. The realization that thoughts are empty of reality is profound. I mean, many people understand it. Well, say, yeah, thoughts are not reality, but to really see that they're empty of reality is radical. I mean, to see that, if you see that, that this whole sense of self in the world is created in the mind. It's all created in the mind. Doesn't mean there's not an experience of it, but it's just created in the mind. Everything you think about yourself in the world is generated representationally in the mind. It's not the real thing. It's not how it really is. So what we begin to get as we practice is that any idea or concept is a veil to truth. Even when there's a spiritual realization, even when we have an aha, our tendency is very quickly to try to make sense of it, to codify it, to, to anchor it in something that's familiar. We co-opt it by the mind. It becomes another mental formulation. And then we sit and we try to access reality through that concept. And what really has to happen is we have to put it all down, completely down, and start fresh in this moment truly start fresh in this moment. It's like they they say, take the world of concepts in two hands and drop it, totally. So it's only with the complete release of ideas and thoughts can truth shine through. And so we practice just over and over, just letting go, letting go again and again. And it's not a self being mindful of the thoughts. It's not like, okay, I'm going to be mindful of thoughts. We are occupying and being the awareness that's perceiving them. So one of the tricks I use, um, and that again goes into very dualistic sounding language, is sometimes I'll be practicing and I'll just ask, am I dreaming right now? Or is dreaming happening? Is, Is this dreaming? And I find that just asking that question, this is the power of inquiry, it just shines a light on some subtle veil that I might not have recognized of conceptualizing what's happening versus actually being. Sometimes I'll ask, where did this thought come from? Where did it go to? And it's not conceptual. This is not a conceptual inquiry. It's almost like just by asking that, there's a relaxing back into the no answer. There's just this empty nothingness and its thoughts are coming and going. When we begin to inhabit awareness and not believe thoughts, then the mind becomes this incredible tool. It's almost as if um, speech and thoughts originate from a different place, from the silence, from a real creativity, and then they become a tool but still they remain transparent. They're not real. 
So we'll just take a moment to reflect. I want to take a moment on each of these levels to reflect and then we're going to move to the next. So this is the reflection on the level of mind. With the pause, just that sincerity of intention to uh, recognize the thoughts that arise. And it can help to establish that sense of hearness, just listening. You might relax in the body if that is helpful. When the body's tense, it's a way of kind of resisting the moment. And just know that you're here. For some people it's helpful in exploring really how awareness manifests in the level of mind to just sense the space outside, like vast space. And sometimes even that curve of a smile in that vast space, just to sense that openness and receptivity. And then just let it settle into the mind, let it spread through the mind so that the mind merges with that openness and that space. And everything that's happening, everything perceived is happening in that openness, that wakeful openness. When there's a listening to sound, notice the silence that's listening. Sensing all the that's happening and the stillness that's aware. Behind the activity that you notice, aware of the awareness itself. Notice what happens when you notice awareness. If or when a thought arises 
So notice it as a thought. And then sense the difference between any thought and the vividness and immediacy of what's right here. So we separate from wholeness when the mind contracts, when awareness comes into the shape of a thought. There's a forgetting of the truth, of the fullness of our being. And it's the same thing at the level of the heart. We uh, lose that wholeness of love, that, that edgelessness of heart, when the sense of our being gets identified with the moods that move through us, with the different weather systems. So clinging at the heart is just identifying with emotions. And what happens if we feel good or bad or healthy or sick? The self, sense of self gets derived from that. We just very quickly, it's like we tell it to ourselves, we tell others, this is, this is me, this is where I'm at. And... Um, So it's not just anger that arises. It's the I that's angry. I'm oppressed by anger. I'm plagued by anger. Um, And then we have reactions to not liking the angry self. But we get fused. The sense of self gets fused with whatever emotion's there. And it gets more and more solid the stronger the emotion is. We just take them personally. And uh, one of my favorite descriptions of how this is, this is um, Lewis Thomas, who's a biologist and a philosopher. And he's describing a female moth, the the male moths. He says, the messages are urgent, but they may arrive, for all we know, in a fragrance of ambiguity. At home, 4 p.m. today, says the female moth, and releases a brief explosion of bombacol, a single molecule of which will tremble the hairs of any male within miles and send him up, driving upwind in a confusion of ardor. But it's doubtful if he has an awareness of being caught in an aerosol of chemical attractant. On the contrary, he probably finds suddenly that it has become an excellent day, the weather remarkably bracing, the time appropriate for a bit of exercise of the old wing is a brisk turn upwind. En route, traveling the gradient of Bombacol, he notes the presence of other males heading in the same direction, all in a good mood, inclined to race for the sheer sport of it. Then, when he reaches his destination, it may seem to him the most extraordinary of coincidences, the greatest piece of luck. Bless my soul, what have we here? So, <laughs> so it feels very, you know, when we feel a lot of passion or desire, it's my passion and my desire. And when we feel a lot of hate or anger, it's my, it just feels very, very personal. We're very identified. Okay. So... Um, 
on the heart, awakening at the heart level is realizing that what we feel does not define who we are. It's, it's really simple and it's incredibly hard to unwind that one because it feels so much like me. And um, yet when we can begin to get that, then the energy of the heart opens up and we get to experience the fullness of the heart. But it's armored otherwise. As long as we're identified, the heart is armored. So um, an example of this unwinding or undoing, um, I'd like to share uh, my own example today, which uh, was this morning during the early morning yoga, I was doing my own uh, practice and then... um, before I came over here, I put on some arnica that had a, a strong menthol eucalyptus in it on my hip, because so, I knew I'd be sitting. And, um, so I walked in, and I walked in a couple of minutes late, and I was wafting this, this <laughs> menthol. And it wasn't, to me, a fragrance I was wafting. It was a noxious odor. And I, was just, I was just came and went in this, in this you know, thing of it. And then my mind started running, this whole thing. I sat down, and I, and I just couldn't believe the smell I was emanating. <laughs> and, I, and Jonathan was next to me, and he started taking these very full breaths. <laughs> so I was thinking that in his mind he was going, yep, something stinks in here. <laughs> and, it, and then I thought he was breathing like that to maybe let me know that something was wrong with me. Well, I started running this thing like, I should leave the room. I mean, this is like really, really bad. And then someone here left the room. And I went, oh no, she's going because <laughs> it's too much. You know. Now, this is papancha. This is proliferation. This is what happens when you're really caught in your own. Um, but I was in this thing of, um, I came late, I smell. <laughs> I should have been more careful. It was really selfish of me. I, you know, I know how sensitive everybody is. And shame, you know, real shame. And I'm sharing this because it's so, I mean, you heard another story today just like that um, with Teresa. So, um, so here I had violated the sacred container here and I was sitting with it. So rain, you know, I, st- I was recognizing like, okay, this is what's going on and investigating, just paying attention. Okay, so where am I feeling the shame and how strong is it and what other story, you know, it's watching the stories And by the way, with this investigating of rain, because somebody wrote me a note with this, it's not conceptual at all. It's a very embodied investigation. If you identify a belief like, I'm a really bad person and uh, not very spiritually evolved for bringing this smell into this room, then you come right into where it's felt in the body, which is what I was doing. The intimacy part of rain, I realized that, uh, you know, I felt really, really bad. It got to a very core place. I was surprised that I got right into this bad personhood feeling. Um, and it wasn't like I was, you know, saying, oh, look, a part of me is feeling that. It was like I was feeling it. And um, I realized that I needed to feel forgiven, you know. And, and so I actually did a process where I um, imagined some of you um, being aware of what was going on and yet knowing I didn't mean badly and and offering forgiveness and then I started being able to forgive myself and then just there was this um, deeper presence with the shame that just let it start moving through me so there was a shift with that kind of tenderness of the heart and a deepened attention there was a re-inhabiting of the space of awareness and a real sense of 
compassion, like, oh my gosh, what suffering? I mean, I'm, I luck out because it, it was a fairly confined time, but, you know, I was thinking the suffering that I went through or that Teresa went through for those moments or that any of us go through when we're living in a story that's creating feelings, that's creating more stories, and sometimes it goes for weeks and sometimes months and sometimes decades where we're separate from who we are and from others. So there was a lot of compassion for that. And in that space of um, presence and compassion, a real getting it that that story, that self and that story is not who I am. It doesn't mean that those feelings aren't part of this ocean of being, but that's just not, that doesn't define me. So there's this shift that happens at the level of heart when we do what we're doing here, and I'm watching so many of you do it, bringing such integrity with that sincerity just to be with. But having shared my story story, I do want to say that should any of you have been (laughs) bothered by (laughs) my smell, I humbly ask your forgiveness. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) Were you? I mean, I went to breakfast and I asked all of them, so... (laughs) Maybe I better take a sip of water before I go on. (laughs) So here's the the kind of key teaching in awakening at the, the level of the heart, that when we pay attention there's a loosening of the identity with the emotion and there's a a re-inhabiting of wholeness. But it's not just that. There's a wholeness that's filled with tenderness. And um, one of the descriptions I really love that this... this, because this heart area is just so capable of tremendous sensitivity. And Adyashanti says this. He says, It is the sense organ of the unmanifest. It is that through which the unmanifest senses itself experiences itself, knows itself. So it's almost like this empty, open awareness realizes itself through these forms and through this sensitivity of the heart. And that we have to be embodied. It's not like we can just go drift off and rest in that empty openness. That unless we really inhabit the fullness of this form, we're not able to experience Um, the juice of the practice. It's a dry emptiness. The juice of the practice is this living, loving presence. So what we discover, and one friend here wrote me in the note, the way through is through, really, is that we bring presence to what arises, and in that presence we discover uh, the the fullness of our hearts. And, and I love the description in the Christian tradition of the opening of the spiritual heart, which is, it's got a depiction of Christ in which he's literally reaching in and pulling the skin of his chest open and revealing this beautiful, glowing, radiant heart. It's pulling open. It's reaching in. It's being present in the deepest way. I'll just share that um, the Trinity is very comparable to the refuges of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That Father awareness, 
and sun is this the naturalness and when awareness is with the naturalness with the nature with what's happening the bond of love arises if we're just resting in empty awareness you don't feel the tenderness of love it's when empty awareness is brought to what's going on in these human bodies that that tenderness awakens so when there's no clench no identification with the emotions we're no longer guarding ourselves we're no longer defending ourselves unconditional love the pathway to unconditional love is releasing that clench of identification with the emotions so that the aliveness of the emotions is felt but not clenched and that's the awakened heart and it's really the indiscriminate lover of what is I mean the awakened heart is just in love with life So there's one Zen master who says, the whole universe is my true personality. If you want to see what you truly are, open the window, and everything you see is in fact the expression of your inner reality. So that as you look around right now, and as you listen, as you take in what seems to be forms out there, that it's all happening in your awareness. It's all part of you. Everything you see is in fact an expression of your inner reality. Can you, can your heart open to embrace all of that? So as the heart opens, this, this center as we begin to see past the identification with with the emotions, um, you start realizing that you love things you don't like. In other words, the the people that you kind of... the the things about your partner or your sister or even the things you... the, the personality parts that you don't like, you start loving it all on some level. You love the people that your personality doesn't love and you, you love the world just as it is. And it doesn't mean there's still not preferences, it's just that you're resting in something larger. So let's take a moment and we'll just do a brief reflection on releasing the, the, heart, the clutch at the heart. As you pause, just notice what's happening. Notice the state of your heart right now. And you might smile into the heart if that is a useful practice for you, just to let sense the space of a smile, the receptivity that allows whatever's there to truly be there. That makes it safe, safe space for what's here. And if there's something you can sense in yourself that wants attention or inclusion this evening, today, Just sense the possibility of letting that be here, right now. 
loud scene. Let ever what's here be what's here, express itself. Kind of waves in your ocean. Sense what it means to have an unresisting presence, a surrendering presence that allows whatever is here to be here. Sometimes described as the empty heart, the awakened heart. from the Radiant Sutras, there is a place in the heart where everything meets. Go there if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are there. Are you there? Enter the bowl of vastness that is the heart. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is there and a steady, regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing, I belong here, I am at home here. So again, we're exploring this path of awakening whereby attention begins to release the the clinging, the identifying, whether it's with thoughts and we just explored emotion. And now the most existential sense of self, the most fundamental clinging is described at the navels as kind of a grasping. Um, It's our root. It's like having a fist in the middle of the gut. And you might or might not sense that right now, but it's something I just invite you to investigate, this kind of core grasping. And it's all the other levels of grasping build from this one. And it's a fundamental resisting aliveness as it is. It's something, and it's just this core existential fear of aliveness and change and separation and loss. And one way to understand it is that coming into form is a shock. I mean, we talked about trauma, big trauma and little trauma, that we we all have trauma. I mean, on some level, it's a shock. And we move from this unlimited potential, this floating, 
and, and imagine birthing, you know, someone grabbing at you, pulling you into this kind of, you know, lighted room, loud voices. Uh, clench. There's a resistance that can come with that. And, and many of us, it wasn't just birthing, um, just inhospitable environments in our life, you know, that, that were, um, were dangerous or experienced as dangerous, more trauma, more clenching. So to the degree we've encountered that, there's going to be some tightness that says no to life. It's like on some level it's saying no to life, no to death, no to being, I will grasp, I will hold on, and most basically I will try whatever I can do to control. The more there's that existential feel of danger, the more we're trying to control. And by the way, every level is a level of control. The mind is controlling by grasping onto thought, the heart's controlling by identifying with the emotions, this aliveness, this is controlling aliveness by clenching, by resisting. So as we begin to wake up, and I've, I've met many people that have had this experience, and this is for sure true for me, the more, get more conscious of that kind of tightness there. And, um, and also more sensitive because in a way with the ego's deconstruction, it puts us more in touch with it. It's just more raw. And I know for myself, there's a part of me that's trying to get rid of the clutch. And that's actually ego, because I want to be more comfortable. And it doesn't work to try to get rid of it, I've found many times. The most important realization when it comes to working at this core level is that there's nothing that I can do. Like, the ego can't do anything. Uh, The only intelligent response is to stop controlling, but there's something tricky about that, to say, okay, I'm just going to be present with, I'm not going to control, that that itself can have a kind of a sense of, okay, I'm going to do this to try to manage things. It's very tricky. So what really is needed is just sincerity, like there's some deep wisdom in us that knows it's about just being with and not controlling and letting in the reality that we can't do anything. And just to say that the ego is addicted to controlling, so this is no small thing. I mean, when we invite you to meditate and just to be with and let life be as it is, that goes completely against the instructions of the ego, completely. So it's kind of like any addict, and we are addicts, we're addicted, um, that the transformation happens when there's a kind of a hitting of bottom each one of us, where on some level there's a sense, you just get it, I can't do this. And um, for for an addict, it's not my will, but God's will, and I like the language of not my will, but the heart's will or willingness. And you can feel the shift in that. You can feel your whole identity shift with it's not my will, but this heart, which you sense is really wisdom, a wise, empty, awake heart's will then there's a beginning of opening, the fist starts opening. So for myself, just to say, in all humility, I've had countless rounds of using strategies of meditation to try to work with things and hitting a wall and getting it that I can't control this mind and body, countless rounds. Um, One of the most dramatic was this summer um, when I was at a Qigong retreat and I had gone there feeling pretty sick and I was really trying to wake up out of the thoughts of a sick self 
and I was trying to really open to what was going on, you know, the real core level of fear about, oh my God, what's going to happen to my life? So that, that was my agenda, you know, let go of the thoughts, open to what's here. And the thoughts just kept coming and the clutch kept getting stronger until one morning I was out in this um, garden they had at this, uh, it was kind of a Christian uh, residential facility and uh, with all these statues of Mary and Jesus. And, and, you know, I was out there in this garden and I was trying, trying, and it just hit a wall where it just became absolutely clear. It was like something in me collapsed. It's like, there's no way that I can do this. I cannot stop these thoughts. I can't let go of anything. I can't really even be with anything. You know, I just, it was like that was the voice. It's just, I can't. And with the, there was kind of a collapse, like a, a feeling of defeat. And but with that, there was this sincerity that opened up, just this longing, just whatever it is that allows for truth. It was like, okay, there's no manipulating, it's not going to work, nothing's going to work, just whatever allows to realize truth, to wake up, whatever it is. And that was the heart's well. There was a shift. And with that shift, there just wasn't the resistance anymore. And... Um, what happened is just kind of unleashed this aliveness. Like I was feeling like way down. And this huge amount of aliveness started opening through my body that continued through the retreat and has continued. I practice a lot of Qigong where, where if I'm not manipulating and there's kind of a just an allowing and I pay attention to the uh, navel area, there's just... And I have to keep coming back because the fist re-resurrects itself all the time. And that's just the nature of selfing. There's just this open, and there's this, this energy that comes through. But what allows it most times to soften and open starts with the heart. It's like in some way I have to feel that kind of smile and tenderness and openness at the heart to make it safe enough for the aliveness to be free to flow. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but just if you start working with this, the heart is kind of the gateway. So what happens this is kind of the, the last piece here, is that at this core level, when there's not will, when we're not willing, when there's not a sense of a self trying to do something, when will is released, it opens space for the flow, it's a universal flow of aliveness. When we're not tight with the controlling, there's this intelligence and aliveness and love that's free, there's room for it. It's free to kind of move through us and guide us. Anthony DeMello says that enlightenment is absolute cooperation with the inevitable. Enlightenment is when everything within us is in cooperation with the flow of life itself. So this is, we're talking about releasing the clench, that controlling that is very existential. And the shift in identity is from this core sense of this self that's trying to control this life and navigate and make things happen, protect, whatever it is, to this sense of being not separate from that energy consciousness being one with that. And this flow is this expression of unity. It directs our existence. It's like this flow, when we're not willing, directs our existence in ways that are healing and loving. 
And it's already happening to each one of you here. Each one of us is letting go some and opening to the who we are, letting the who we are really manifest, each one of us. And it's, it unfolds in ways that are amazing. We could have never imagined with our mind, but our life just gets guided by this flow. I'll read you a, a, real, a poem from Rilke. He says, May what I do flow from me like a river, no forcing and no holding back, the way it is with children. Then in these swelling and ebbing currents, these deepening tides moving out, returning, I will sing you as no one ever has, streaming through widening channels into the open sea. So this is the third area of paying attention, but if we get out of this, it's not linear in any way. It's like um, we're opening to aliveness. We're opening to aliveness, and when we open without resistance to the changing flow, we find that which is changeless. There is a stillness and a peace. It's just an empty presence. When there's no resistance to the aliveness, we then inhabit this, this empty awakeness that's absolutely still and profoundly peaceful. So each of these areas or domains of, of uh, the mind and the heart and the aliveness, the belly, with each of them they're gateways to this wholeness of being. So I began tonight, and we're going to just do a very short closing meditation, but I began tonight with that dinosaur story because it's really helpful to our hearts and awareness to recognize how much of our lives are lived inside a trance of of limiting stories. It's helpful to see that it's disturbing, it brings up sadness, but it also brings up a sense of possibility. One person said today, you know, I can really let, see things as they are and let them be as they are. Then there's hope. And there is hope. Because what we're coming home to, what we're waking up to is who we already are. And these stories have been the veil. And so we're beginning to let go of that veil and open to that wholeness. Open in the mind to this radiant openness that sees the thoughts, the thoughts come and go, they can be useful, but realizes that what we are is the awareness that's aware, radiant, open. And when we open in the heart to the emotions, all the feeling tones move through us, and yet our identity's not hitched. And there's this vastness of heart, this unconditional love. And when we open to the, and the belly and this clutch begins to loosen, we open to this amazing aliveness. So there's a saying in Zen that when realization is deep, your whole being is dancing. So let's do a a final meditation. Very brief.
So pausing and with just a, an interest and a don't know mind, we'll revisit the domains and just sense the mind and let the mind be filled with a smile. so that you can rest in the awareness that knows sound. And the silence that's listening. whatever's being perceived, the sounds, the sensations, perhaps thoughts, just sensing the openness it's happening in. When not believing thoughts, there's a resting in this radiant knowing this openness. Bringing that same open presence to the heart area, sensing the smile there. Sensing how everything you perceive, every form in this room, this human forms, and the trees outside, the butterflies and the birds, the mountains, are all part of the reality that's right here in this mind, part of this awareness, Can your heart embrace it all? Sensing the openness, tenderness of the heart, including the aliveness that's here through this body, giving permission allowing full aliveness to be felt. The body of the beloved, emptiness manifesting as form, in love with this aliveness, resting in this wholeness of being, awake, open, radiant, Havis writes, one day the sun admitted, I am just a shadow, I wish I could show you the infinite incandescence 
that had cast my brilliant image. I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness the astonishing light of your own being. So thank you for your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.